0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual
1: harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask
2: on the Savage Lovecast. I guess it's only fitting that the Republican Leadership Conference is being held this week in New Orleans. Uh, I think if you're in the Republican Party and you want to visit New Orleans, maybe there's some subconscious, intuitive sense that you better go now. Because, as was reported last week widely, the Antarctic ice sheets are melting. And the melt is now, considered by scientists and researchers, to be irreversible. And when the ice sheets do melt, that will cause a sea level rise of conservative estimate four meters or 13 feet, which means goodbye, new Orleans. It also means goodbye, Florida, which is about the only upside I can see to climate change. Uh, Marco Rubio will not be in the Senate forever because Marco Rubio will no longer have a state to represent Marco Rubio, who says that he is not a scientist, but he does not believe in climate change. Uh, Of course, scientists believe in climate change and the Arctic ice sheets apparently believe in climate change because they are melting. So the Republicans are meeting in New Orleans while they can. You might want to get to New Orleans while you can because soon we won't have a New Orleans to get to. Uh, One of the speakers at the Republican Leadership Conference this week, the headliner, the keynote, the opening night act, Phil Robertson head of the Duck Dynasty clan. After the Republicans lost the election in 2012, there was all this talk of rebranding and reaching out to minorities, women, queers. So it seems odd that you would, at this stage, invite Phil Robertson, who famously, in that Interview in GQ uh, said incredibly homophobic things, but more to the point and more offensively said these incredibly racist things. Uh, He argued and he believes that African-Americans were better off in the South under Jim Crow, which was slavery and everything but property exchange. African-Americans couldn't vote. African-Americans were terrorized. African-Americans were lynched. But Phil Robertson, everywhere he went, saw only happy, happy African-Americans singing and working in the fields. It sounds like Phil Robertson saw Disney's Song of the South one day and that stuck in his head forever. And this just is so appalling to argue that African-Americans were better off under Jim Crow because what you personally saw we're happy African-Americans singing. And they never complained to him. They never complained personally to Phil Robertson, this white man, as he walked by. Odd that African-Americans living under Jim Crow in the South wouldn't gripe to a white person, to a random white person who happened to be walking by at a time when uppity, griping African-Americans were routinely lynched by mobs of white people. Odd, odd that African-Americans never personally communicated to Phil Robertson their displeasure with living in the Jim Crow South. Anyway, the Republicans have invited Phil Robertson to headline at the Republican Leadership Conference, where Rick Santorum, Ted Cruz, Michelle Bachman, Newt Gingrich, Bobby Jindal, and noted whoremonger David Vitter, Senator David Vitter, will also be speaking along with other Republican hopefuls for the 2016 nomination, including... Rick Perry. This may look suicidal from sort of the long term perspective that the Republicans are inviting Phil Robertson to headline their conference, doubling down on anti gay hate, doubling down on attacking minorities and people of color. Uh, and one thing the Republicans don't seem to understand. About attacking African-Americans, which the invitation of Phil Robertson is an implicit attack on African-Americans, is that other minority groups find that appalling too. There's a reason why. Republicans are scratching their heads. Why don't Asian-Americans vote for us at the rate that white people do? We never attack Asian-Americans the way we attack African-Americans, the way we attack Hispanics, immigrants. Uh, And it's because people of color stand around watching other people of color getting attacked and they think, huh, we're probably next. And they're uncomfortable voting for you motherfuckers. So it may seem suicidal to have Phil Robertson come speak at this Republican conclave in New Orleans while we still have a New Orleans until you remember that this shit plays. In the long term, this is not going to play. In the long term, they are blowing holes in the bottom of their boat. In the short term for the 2014 midterms, this shit plays. In the short term, attacking queers, attacking people of color is going to turn out angry, idiotic, scared dumb white people, also known as the GOP base. And it may help them win the 2014 midterm elections, particularly if you folks who can hear the sound of my voice don't vote and don't get everyone, you know, to go vote, please go vote. And as a Democrat, I sometimes don't know as a Democrat, as a liberal, as a progressive, I sometimes don't know whether to be elated or distressed by the Republican Party continuing to tap people like Phil Robertson to speak to and for them. Uh, As an American citizen, I consider it divisive. I hate the hate, right? But as a Democrat, I'm like, yeah, there's an upside in this shit. There's an upside for Dems and liberals and progressives and the Republicans continuing to double and triple and quadruple down on the bigotry, on the hatred, and on the haters. And the upside is they're continuing to alienate Independents, moderates, in continuing to fire up the liberal base. My good friend, Peter Lababera, uh, ranting, raving, uh, head of an officially designated anti gay hate group, Americans for Truth About Homosexuality, tweeted this uh, a couple weeks ago. Conservatives don't rant about political correctness and then embrace political correctness with regards to homosexuality. Say it. It is wrong. I tweeted back to Peter. I agree with you, Peter LaBibera. Please, conservatives, continue to say it. Continue to alienate young voters, independent single women, et cetera, et cetera. So there's an upside for libs and progressives that Phil Robertson is speaking to the Republicans in New Orleans while we have a New Orleans for Phil Robertson to speak in. There's a downside for our polity, for our politics, for the discourse. There's an upside for libs, I guess. I'm I'm grasping for the silver lining in that storm cloud. But it's there, I guess. But again, as I've warned you, I would say on the podcast over and over and over again in the run-up to 2014, the silver lining's only there for us to grasp if you get registered and vote this November. Coming up on the Magnum edition of this week's Savage Lovecast, Tracy Clark Flory from Salon, Salon's terrific sex writer. And I have a conversation about incels, involuntary celibates, the involuntary celibate community, and its link to the University of California Santa Barbara misogynist killer. And now your calls.
3: Hi, Dan. I'm a 25 year old straight woman from Detroit. I've been dating my boyfriend seriously for about three years now. And I have a question. Before me, he dated seriously another girl for a number of years and um, he states that he is not a very sentimental person but he has kept a gift that she gave to him for the entire time that we have been dating and uh, recently he moved and he threw out a bunch of stuff that he didn't want anymore because he wanted change and for a while I thought he'd thrown out the gift but I was She's doing some dishes lately, and I found the gift uh, tucked away into the back of a cupboard. And I've asked him about this once um, a couple of years ago, and he kind of dismissed the question. It wasn't very, he didn't want to talk about it. And all he said was that she had been a very big part of his life for a long time, and that. He wanted to keep, I guess, a bit of that around, but he has explicitly, you know, said and throughout our relationship, it just hasn't been a very sentimental person and hates keeping objects around that aren't necessary. So I don't want him to necessarily get rid of this. I'm very secure about a relationship. I guess I can't really ask him about it, or I feel like I can't because he doesn't seem to want to talk about it ever. So if you could give me your input, that would be really helpful. Thanks.
2: So I'm calling because I'm curious what this object is. Is it a pair of panties? Is it a set of silver? Is it a chandelier? What the fuck is it?
3: Uh it's it's actually a best friend's mug with a picture of them on it from when they first started dating.
2: hmm Is it the only picture he has of uh them together?
3: Um as far as I'm concerned, yes. He doesn't really um keep photo albums or anything.
2: Mm-hmm. Does he have other objects lying around the house, like mementos, you know, trophies that belong to his grandfather, or anything like that?
3: I mean, uh, he, you know, he he has a little things from when he was traveling, but in terms of sentimental objects, um, he doesn't keep too many of them around mm-hmm. okay, bef- at all. Before we yeah. talk
2: about his objects, I want to run a couple of mine past you, okay? Uh, okay. One night years ago in Berlin uh, 25 years ago, 26 years ago I met this insanely hot guy in a bar And we ended up sort of dating for a year And I have the piece of paper The little piece of the phone book Actually that he tore out and wrote his name and number on I have that, mm-hmm. I have that still I know exactly where that is In my house okay. and, and Terry's seen it uh, Do mm-hmm. you think I should have to throw that away And do you think Terry has a right to be upset about its existence And that I still own this thing
3: I don't necessarily want him to throw it out or get rid of it. Then, or, then know, wait, okay.
2: Then why are you calling me about it?
3: More of it, more than anything, because I, I just, I just don't know what to think about it. Because I feel like every time I try to bring it up, because you know, I don't like to be a jealous person, but it does bug me a little. And whenever I bring it up, okay, he doesn't seem to want to talk about it. You're jealous.
2: You're, je- uh, you're jealous about a mug. You're jealous that he owns a mug. <laughs> So that is kind of a jealous person. Is he fucking the mug? Is the mug what he jacks off into?
0: <laughs> I don't know. Does, it, does he he? any
2: desire to get back together with this girl?
3: Um, I don't know. Probably not.
2: No, um, no, no. He He has no desire to get back together with this girl. The only thing mm-hmm. that can really inspire someone who has, you know, a memento or an object or a photo... Uh, of a previous lover or past relationship to consider getting a new lover, going back to that old lover, is their current lover freaking the fuck out about that object all the time because it makes the new lover seem irrational and controlling and insecure in deeply unattractive ways. That's true. That's a good point. So, if the reason he's probably hesitant to talk to you about this. Is because he knows you're not rational about it. It's no fun to have conversations with people about the thing that they are not rational about. So rational mm-hmm. people, and everyone's irrational about some things. So someone who's, mm-hmm. you know, rational about this is not gonna have a conversation with someone who's irrational about this because it's not gonna get anywhere. So they just mm-hmm. avoid the subject. So his reluctance to talk with you about this mug is not evidence that he wants to get back through his girlfriend or there's something deep and meaningful or something he's not telling you. It's just evidence that he's avoiding the topic. He hid the mug. He put it out of sight. So it wouldn't he doesn't drink out of it every morning in front of you. He doesn't make you look at him bringing his ex-girlfriend to his mouth every morning with every sip of coffee or tea. Mm-hmm. And you need to just eat it. You need to just accept that he's had other girlfriends in the past, that he has a life... Needed life experiences before you came along. And I, I'm kind of a guy like him, I think, maybe in some ways. I keep a lot of like mm-hmm. ephemera and objects uh, mm-hmm. because I have a terrible memory. And I see an object and I think, and it calls to mind for me all this history. Like I remember things I wouldn't remember if I didn't see the object. So he's not remembering her affectionately compared with you. He's remembering a time in his life that helped shape him into the person that he is now that you were so attracted to that you wanted to be with him and then get crazy at him about this fucking mug. Mm -hmm. And you need to like stop being crazy about the fucking mug. I have, uh, there's a shelf in our house that has the, the cake toppers that were on top of mine and Terry's wedding cake, these two golden cocks, because we got married in the year of the cock. We met on Chinese New Year. <laughs> two golden cocks, right? <laughs> Sitting side by side. Yeah. Also on that shelf are two little porcelain puppies that were that belonged to me and my ex-boyfriend of five years before Terry. And they were kind okay. of our spirit. And I keep I keep them together. They're actually kind of put up there as kind of equivalencies. They're they're equivalent to one another. They were emotionally significant little talismanic objects of my past relationship and my current relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think what they indicate is that I'm capable of having relationships and making long-term commitments and bonds, and so it's a good sign. Mm -hmm. And so who knows what he thinks when he sees this object? I I, I guarantee you that the odds that he is thinking, I wish I was still with the bitch on the mug, are really infinitesimal because if he wanted to be with the bitch on the mug he'd be with the bitch on the mug if he had that option yeah
0: that's true you
3: know like i mean i've i've thought of all of this independently but you know i i i really feel like i just need to hear it from from a, a justice third party to really hammer it in so you,
2: you've thought of it all independently yeah. but you, again you're not rational on this subject and and and, and i'm not saying you're an irrational crazy bitch right we're all irrational mm-hmm. about certain <laughs> things and when mm-hmm. when you can identify those things you're irrational about you, you really, sometimes you can't fix that. You can't get rational about something you're irrational about, but you can recognize, about this, I am irrational. The accommodation okay. I request of my boyfriend, I'm speaking as you, to, to work around my irrationality is, you know what, keep the mug, but just put it away so I don't have to look at it all the time because I'm not quite rational about that mug. And I know that's like silly and stupid, but, and he's doing that already. He put it away. That's true. Out of sight, out of mind. Maybe every once in a million mm-hmm. years he stumbles across it and sees it. And he remembers the good times with that person, and you shouldn't be threatened by that.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You're right.
2: <laughs> you want him that capacity in him to remember the good times and,
3: mm-hmm. and, and
2: think about them, and is something that will serve your relationship well. That 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 yeah. that he is the kind of person who forms sentimental attachments, who wants to mm-hmm. wants to remember the good, even in a relationship that ended means that he's going to form a sentimental attachment to you, that he will remember the good. Maybe in times of conflict with you, he will focus on the good. These are all signs that Mm -hmm. he's a keeper, not just in the sense that he's keeping that fucking mug with that fucking bitch on it, but that he's a keeper and that he's a good guy. You want a guy who has a heart. Mm -hmm. And you don't. It it sucks to be with people who hate their exes in every way. Yeah. People who hate their exes in every way hate their currents as well. Mm Mm-hmm. So, if he was the burn the photo albums, cut the bitch out of the pictures, smash the mug on a cliff, because the relationship ran its course, not because she betrayed him in some horrible way, you know, she ran off and fucked his dad and married his dad. Yeah, then he could like destroy everything to get his anger and rage <laughs> out. But if it was just a relationship that ran its course, and you, you've seen these people in our lives, you see people, the relationship runs their course, and then they go completely fucking psycho. They destroy yeah. things, throw things away, and you're looking at them going, dude, you just like. He just broke up. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a <laughs> war crime or anything. And then they go on, and they're they're not very nice to their next partner because okay. people who can't think well of or remember fondly their exes are not going to treat their currents well and not treat mm-hmm. them with kindness and respect. So you mm-hmm. should treasure that mug not because that bitch is on it, but because what it symbolizes, what it signifies about your partner.
3: Okay. Yes. Yeah. I think I will try to do that. Are you home? Yes, I am. Is the
2: mug in the house? Uh
3: no, um I don't I don't live with him currently, so it is in his house.
2: <laughs> okay, you got to stop being a crazy bitch. You don't live with him and you want to <laughs> edit his mug collection? No, you don't get to do that.
3: <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> but the next time you're there and you're in his house alone, I want you to get the mug out secretly, not tell mm-hmm. him, and not destroy it or hide it. I want you to drink a fucking cup of coffee or tea out of it. And just sit with that (laughs) mug and think, this is about us now too, this mug. Okay. Because I'm with him and he's a good guy and this mug is a good sign about the kind of guy he is and I'm going to stop being angry about this mug because it's a good thing in his life and he's a good thing in mine. Okay. Good luck.
4: All right, thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan. The 31 straightish female calling. I have been using OkCupid as a way of like going on dates and stuff like that. And I use it when I travel to meet locals who I might want to go have a drink with stuff like that. So I do look around the world for compatibility and stuff like that. But I have somebody from France uh, we've been messaging and I think that he would be a fine person to go have a drink with if I ever go back to France. But the problem is that he wants to come to see me in Texas and I'm not exactly sure if I feel like, is there a polite way to be like, here's a hotel room that you can find. I feel that I'm like already kind of like pulling away and I don't like respond to his like sexy questions that he asks me. I kind of ignore those and answer just the more mundane, like day-to-day questions of how things are going. I think that maybe if we were to meet, we would get along fine, but, I would like to do it on my terms when I can, like, we can meet. And if we like each other, okay, fine. But it just seems like a lot of responsibility on my part to have to house him and entertain him and all of that. So I was just wondering, like, what your thoughts are. My knee-jerk reaction is just to pull the plug on the whole thing and be like, nope, I'm sorry. I don't want you to come visit. So I'd love any thoughts you have.
2: This is another call from the use your words file. You just have to tell him how you're feeling. He doubtless senses that you are pulling away, that you're less engaged. He senses that there's something up, but he doesn't know what it is, particularly if you guys made this plan for him to come visit and it was already sort of assumed around the table or you offered or said yes when he asked to him staying with you. And maybe that's what makes the visit financially doable for him. But if that's what's making you uncomfortable, he has no way of knowing that that's the issue until you fucking tell him. And if you say to him, look, I'm excited to meet you. I think maybe I got a little carried away. I want to do internet dating best practices, which means we should meet in public first. We should hang out a little bit uh, before we go anywhere alone together. And that means I'm just not comfortable inviting a stranger that I've never spent any time with in person to stay in my house on a trip to see me that may potentially end with his dick in me. So what we need to do is get a hotel room for you that's near my house or get an Airbnb, which can get a really cheap accommodation in a nice place in my area. So we can hang out, but still have our separate places. Uh, And if he reacts badly to that, if he's a total towering dick about your perfectly reasonable request, then you don't want to meet him. Then that's all the proof you need that you don't, that's not someone you would want in your house. But if he is reasonable about it and is like, yes, I've been thinking about that too or that makes perfect sense, I'll start examining options or if you can send me some Airbnb links to look at, that would be great because there's a language barrier, whatever. If he reacts to it like a human being and is totally down with getting a hotel room, then he's probably actually the kind of guy you would want to stay in your house paradoxically. But he will have his own hotel room to stay in. So just tell him. Just say to him. Who knows? Maybe he's going to be great about it. And if he's great about it, Yahtzee. If he's awful about it and then says he's not coming, good. You don't want him to come, if that's the reaction he has.
1: Hi, Dan and the risk-savvy high-tech youth. I'm a 29-year-old male calling from the UK. I called briefly a few weeks ago, agonising over my decision to postpone breaking up with my girlfriend of eight and a half years until school holidays. I'm still planning on doing that, and now it's just a week away. Anyway... Um, I met up with my friend for a drink yesterday evening, and that turned into a few drinks, and we had a a pretty fun evening out. We talked a lot, and it really made me feel better about where I'm at and the choices I'm making. The thing is, when we said goodbye at the tube station, he gave me a hug and sort of kissed me on the cheek. We were both fairly drunk, and I didn't really think anything of it. But looking back at it now, the entire evening does have a little bit of a Vibe to it, and I'm not sure whether it, it was a case of he saw just something different to how I saw it. My friend is fine, and whilst I consider myself to be pretty flexible, it's fairly rare for me to be attracted to guys, and I really see him as a close friend rather than anything else. At this point, I suspect you're thinking, just use your words and tell him, hey, I'm probably thinking this, but I'm not sure if you thought of that that was something else. I'm not particularly interested in anything other than friendship right now, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The thing is, I'm kind of kinky in theory, if not in practice. And during the evening, we talked a fair bit about kink, and I talked at some length about how one thing that I'm looking forward to about getting out of this relationship is just not being in anything serious for a while. And there's a bit of me that started wondering if it would be an utterly stupid idea to suggest being play partners. Um, I know a lot of kinky stuff, like rope bondage and things like that. It doesn't have to be sexual. And I feel it'd be better to practice with someone that I know well than somebody new. I should probably add that we, me and my friend, actually met through martial arts, and we're actually pretty regular training partners. This means that we've developed a fair amount of familiarity and trust and communication skills when it comes to... Uh, What comes to physical contact when it comes to pain? Is this the kind of thing that friends can do together as friends? Or am I potentially leading him on with false promises of intimacy or boyfriendship or whatever?
2: For years, I knew these two guys who were in a beautiful long-term relationship. Uh, One of them was gay and crazy into bondage and really just bondage, just like to tie guys up. And the other was straight and was crazy into really elaborate gear style uh, bondage um, with all the like most expensive bells and whistles and toys. And none of his girlfriends and no girls that he knew could do that for him, that activity, that thing that turned him on that wasn't about genitals. Uh, So he would do it with this other guy that, that I had gotten to know, this friend of mine. And their relationship, uh, their sort of bondage kink play partners relationship, outlasted his relationships with girlfriend after girlfriend after girlfriend. In part because you know the girlfriends would find out uh, and freak out, and then he would decided he would tell girlfriends in advance, and some of them would walk until he found a girlfriend who wasn't threatened by this aspect of his sexuality that he enjoyed the kink with this person with that. He didn't really have a big sexual connection with and they weren't sexually intimate, but they were kind of bondage kink intimate and they were really there for each other. It was a really beautiful long-term relationship. So this sort of arrangement, this sort of thing between somebody who's bi or gay and somebody who's straight or heteroflexible where the, the, the focus is the kink. The focus is more on this activity that both enjoy that can work. I've seen it work with my own eyes. Uh, And indeed this is a, Use your words event. You can go to your friend and say, I'm getting out of this relationship. As you know, I really feel like this comfort and this rapport with you. I'm kinky and inexperienced. You're kinky and experienced. You're bi. I'm flexible. I think I'm bi when it comes to kink. And I would like to do this shit with you. I'd like to explore this with you. Maybe you two together could jump into the organized kink scene and who knows who you'll both meet. But at least you'll have each other lean on rely on, play with, if you guys go to play parties. This sounds like the beginning of a very beautiful, potential, kink-focused, limited-scope, sexual-ish relationship. And you should go for it. The worst you're going to hear is no. The worst you're going to get is a rejection that is the indication you need to jump into the organized kink scene. And on the upside, you'll hear, yeah, I would like that too. I didn't feel, you know, maybe he's hesitant to broach the subject, maybe the kiss was his first salvo, because he's trying to respect your heterosexuality? Are you out to him as heteroflexible or just out to me now as heteroflexible in the context of this conversation about what you'd like to make happen with this dude? Go to him. Go to him. Talk to him about it. Sounds like a beautiful potential relationship in the style of my friend's long-term relationship with his uh, straight bondage buddy. You could be your friend's straight bondage buddy. And if you are, you should then call us back and tell us all about it let us know how it goes.
4: Hi, Ben. I'm a 25-year-old queer woman, and I need help framing something for my girlfriend. I'm a regular listener, and I think it's one of those don't-roll-it-out-like-it's-cancer situations, but I'm having some trouble wrapping my head around it because it feels a little bit like cancer. (laughs) Here's the story. We met and started dating seven months ago while I was staying with family in the small town where she lives. It was a temporary situation, which we both knew. And after three months, I left for New York City, which was the plan all along. We had fallen in love by that time and decided to try out a long-distance thing instead of breaking up. So, for the first three months while I was there, we had great sex pretty much every day, um, often more than once. It was adventurous, fun, really good for both of us. And it seemed to me like we had a similar sex drive and interest in sex. Um, Since things have been long-distance, that's changed. At first, we would talk dirty, have a lot of sex when we saw each other, and even tried Skype sex. But since then, it's petered off. When I see her, she tends to say no to sex more than yes and rarely initiates. She also seems pretty uninterested in S&M, bondage, role-play, and some of the other fun, adventurous things we were trying, which I was really into and I thought she was, too. We've talked about it some, and she says it's the distance. When I was there, we were connecting all day, every day. It was a whirlwind, kind of, three months, and that naturally led to lots of sex. She says that when she hasn't seen me for a while, her tendency is to want to talk first to connect, as where, for me, I want to have sex. That's how I feel her and connect after it's been a while. I understand that, but to me, it doesn't actually explain the degree of the change. It used to be we can't keep our hands off of each other, and last time I visited her, after, like, a month of not seeing each other, we had sex once, and I pretty much had to beg her to get her to fuck me. Um, And she said, no, pretty much all week. Same thing on the visit before that. I just feel like there's something more going on than logistics or a different way that we want to greet each other. Our relationship's open, so I can have sex with other people if I want to, which I might do. Um, But what I really want is to have a great sex life with her. I don't know how to bring this up. She's pretty sensitive to feeling like she's disappointing me or not a good enough girlfriend. Our last time I tried to bring it up, which admittedly was at a bad time, I think that's how she heard it, and it didn't go anywhere. The last thing I want to do is make her feel bad. I really love her, and I like her, and I don't feel like she owes me anything. Um, We have a great thing going on, including chemistry, at least I think so.
0: I love sex. I love sex with her.
4: It's an important part of who I am and how I express and how I find joy and relax and all that. I want to understand what's going on with her. I want to see if we can get our sex life back on track. If we can't, or if she doesn't want to, I want to know that too. I don't want to force anything or pressure her. Some things that may or may not be relevant. She's a single mother who works full-time. She is lot on her plate. She's 12 years older than me, and she was raised fundamentalist Christian, which I have no idea if that's relevant. Anyway, how can I roll this conversation out in a fun, light, and loving way when it feels to me, at least a little bit sad. I really want to find the right way to frame it that has the best chance of her hearing it and wanting to work it through. Please help.
2: You know what's unfair in a relationship, setting aside the whole sex issue for just a second, saying to someone, you know, it makes me feel bad. I'm very sensitive to criticism and, and, you know, it makes me feel like a bad girlfriend when you bring to me the things about our relationship that are making you unhappy. So here's the deal. You have to eat those things and be unhappy in silence and never trouble me with our relationship problems or things we need to work on together. Cause it gives me a big sad. That is not a legitimate demand. That is not a way you can frame what is permissible conflict resolute discussion feelings in a relationship. She's basically ruled out of bounds. You approaching her with your dissatisfaction. That is a cancer that's going to eat away and kill this relationship. This relationship that probably deserves to die anyway. Except it's going to die the slow lesbian death of process and you being charged with working around her sensitivities because if you bring her a direct criticism or complaint, then the issue then instantly shifts to, you have hurt my feelings in this way that I warned you was not okay because I'm so sensitive to feeling like a bad girlfriend and you made me feel like a bad girlfriend and then you're a bad person for doing that and it becomes a conversation about what a bad girlfriend you are rather than about this problem that you guys need to fix and you guys need to solve Or the relationship is doomed. Which is that at three months, you are begging for sex at three months. And somehow with the pressures of parenting and full-time employment, three months ago, she could fuck the shit out of you all the time. But now with those same pressures, you have to beg for sex and endure rejection. You go to her and you say, I'm glad we're an open relationship. I love you if you're going to stay together with her against my better judgment. You say, I'm going to stay with you. Clearly, sex is going to play less of a prominent role in our ongoing committed relationship. So I'm going to fuck the shit out of a lot of other people because we're in an open relationship and I'm going to seek this kind of pleasure, release, get my knees met elsewhere so I don't burden you with these requests. You could say that or you could pull the fucking plug because it's only been three months and it's clearly not working and you're in relationship with someone who is playing a kind of game with you, who is dictating to you rules that are unfair to you about conflict resolution about dissatisfaction about how you to process your feelings and she said you're not allowed to have feelings that give me feelings if you have a feeling that gives me a feeling that's not okay that's unfair uh, that's bullshit is what that is and you shouldn't put up with it hi
5: Dan uh I have a, a bit of a problem uh I'm uh 38 years old, and uh, I'm still a virgin. I've never been with anyone. Uh, You know, when I was in high school, I was depressed and angry all the time, so it's not uh, helpful for attracting a girlfriend, so I never had one. I never got laid in high school, and as soon as I got out, I started working, and I was a caregiver to my family members who were sick, and uh, the years just went flying by, and I was working full-time, and I was a caregiver full-time, and now I'm 38, and everybody I love is dead and gone, and uh, I'm, I'm alone now. And uh, I can uh, now I can actually start, you know, my life. And uh know, I'm a simple guy. I just want, you know, a good woman that I can, you know, be with and love, and who loves me, and I can have a family with. But uh, I have no idea how to <laughs> go out there. You know, the dating scene. I mean, it's a uh, it's terrifying. So, I just need a little advice, you know. I really don't know how to approach women. Um, I'm a smart guy, but and uh, people tell me I'm funny, but and and uh, I've been told a lot by girls, you know. Damon, you are an honest to god good guy, and I like hearing that. But good guy is good guy. It doesn't exactly mean you're sexy. (laughs) Um, I just need a little advice, you know, on how how I get out there.
2: There is standard issue, uh, sex advice, industrial complex uh, advice for someone in your situation. Put yourself out there. Put personal ads online. Uh, be realistic. Get yourself a therapist who can help you work on your interpersonal skills. If indeed after all of these years of isolation and taking care of your family, they are lacking, um, it is really good to have a, an accurate sense of who you are and how you come across. And sometimes it takes feedback to build that and to tweak your – Self presentation. You know, if you are doing something that's really off putting uh, without intent, if you're doing something that scares people, scares women in particular, and women have a lot to be afraid of because a lot of women are uh, subjected to a lot of male violence over the course of their lives, you need to fix that if you want to attract. Uh, a, a female partner. So put yourself out there, get online, get out there and meet people not at bars for kids, but in age appropriate locations and spaces and times and volunteer work and being out in your community, right? You never know who you might meet. All that said, I get in trouble sometimes for saying this, but I think it's important to say, and I've said it in my advice column for 20 years ago, I gave this advice and everyone lost their mind. But I think It's true and people should be acquainted with it. People should go into their adult lives knowing this. Uh, And this is what I've said that you're not allowed to say. There isn't someone for everyone. Some of us are alone all of our lives. We all start out alone and even those of us who aren't alone may wind up alone again at some point in the future. Uh, It's damaging, I think, to tell people that there is someone for everyone. That may condemn some people to live in a kind of torturous false hope. Where you know their expectations of this partner always being around the corner are constantly and continually dashed, and they feel terrible about themselves day in day out because this thing that they 've been told is going to happen keeps not happening, uh, and a lot of their sort of anger and disappointment uh, turns inward and becomes this self loathing in others that anger and disappointment shoots outward and becomes this this rage, but there isn 't someone for everyone the trick of a happy productive. Life is to build one for yourself that is going to be happy and productive and rewarding, whether you are partnered or not, whether you are a virgin all your life or not, and to do things and to go places and to live places and to experience things, non-sexual things. Uh, That give you joy and that give you pleasure. And the more you're out there in the world doing shit, doing shit that you enjoy, the more productive you are, the bigger contribution you make, the more people you're going to meet. The more people you meet, the higher the odds you may meet somebody who shares a lot of your interests or is attracted to your passion for whatever, even if it's not their interest and will be attracted to you. But you gotta, you got to then suspend your disbelief. You can't be out there in the world doing things in hopes that I'm going to meet somebody. That if I just keep doing things, I meet. you've got to be doing them regardless of whether you ever meet anybody. I wish there was more cultural sympathy and understanding for the 38-year-old male virgin. You know, I just looked up the movie 40-year-old virgin thinking, God, this should be shown constantly. It should be re-released every year. It should be shown in high schools because there's some people who are in this position. And the movie does a really great job of making someone in your position sympathetic Perhaps, unfortunately, the movie posits that at the end of every 40-year-old virgin's rainbow, there's a Catherine Keener. Catherine Keener is the actress who plays the woman that Steve Carroll's 40-year-old virgin meets and falls in love with and loses his virginity to. There isn't a Catherine Keener out there for everybody. But Steve Carroll's character in the 40-year-old virgin finds that person when he opens up, when he gets honest about who he is and where he is. He actually turns to his crazy ass, it's a comedy, crazy ass, damaged, nutty friends for their advice, for their counsel about how to present himself, about how to, how to live in the world, how to move into the world. If he wants to obtain some sort of romantic success, you should do the same. The help of a therapist or the help of your friends. You say you're a good guy, but you say that's not enough. You know what? It is enough. Most people are just looking for good and decent Most people aren't looking for movie star looks or insane amounts of wealth. Most people are looking for good, loving, kind, and decent. Considering who you were to your family for so many years, you're obviously a good and kind, decent, and caring person. You just have to put yourself out there in the world. Look for and ask for what it is you want without an expectation that the universe owes it to you because the universe doesn't owe you anything. And build a life for yourself that's going to give you joy regardless of whether you ever meet somebody, regardless of whether you ever lose your virginity. And paradoxically, the more at peace you are with that, the more joyful your life, the higher the odds that you will meet someone. As I said to the previous caller, uh, sometimes, uh, some of us are gonna be alone in our lives. We're not romantic or sexual successes. Some people are virgins all their life. And that can turn into a, a bitterness and an anger that turns inward and becomes a kind of self-loathing. Because, you know, particularly for men, uh, so much of their self-concept and sense of themselves as successfully male and masculine hinges upon sexual success. Uh, but also, as I mentioned, for some people that you know, to be that 38-year-old virgin, as in the previous caller's case, or a 23- or 22-year-old virgin, and to feel like a sexual romantic failure, uh, that anger and disappointment can turn into a rage that instead of being inwardly directed and becoming self-loathing or depression, is outwardly directed. and becomes, as we saw in California last week, uh, uh, misogynistic hatred and misogynistic violence. Um, Elliot Roger is the... Uh, 23-year-old, mentally ill, uh, insane, misogynist, violent kid who killed three men and three women and himself uh, last week because if you go online and look at his manifesto, uh, he was filled with such hatred and rage for the objects of his frustrated desires that he wanted to take them from the world and punish them for their rejection of him. And Elliot Roger was involved uh, online – such an enormous online footprint with what's called the involuntary celibacy community, which fuels a lot of this entitlement, uh, this attitude of entitlement uh, coupled uh, with rage and magnifies it in some cases, uh, fans the flames. Joining me by phone, Tracy Clark Flory. She is Salon.com sex reporter and a freelance writer. She does absolutely terrific work at Salon uh, and she uh, has been on the show numerous times and she wrote last week about... Uh, the Involuntary Celibacy Community Online, or Incels, as they call themselves. The story is titled Inside the Terrifying Twisted Online World of Involuntary Celibates. And Tracy's joining us by phone uh, now from San Francisco. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So uh, for folks who don't know about the Involuntary Celibacy Community, what is it?
4: So basically, it, it as you said, it's a community for people who define themselves as involuntarily celibate. Uh, and they, def- they define as incels. Um, a related group are people who identify as love-shy, um, which is defined as an inability to date or have sex. Um, there are certainly many people who sort of fall under that umbrella of, of having difficulty dating or having sex who, who don't identify by those terms and, um, and also who don't go to these online message boards that are filled with Misogyny and and violent rhetoric, um, so that's important to note. They, these people are not necessarily, you know, representative of all people who identify as involuntarily celibate.
2: When you read, you know, your piece and you you, you read the comments of many people on these boards, what really leaps out at you is this, this rage against, you know, a redefinition, basically freedom of women, that women are no longer property that are exchanged Mm -hmm. between males, that, that women have agency and control as Mm -hmm. opposed to just being chattel. And they pine for a time when even guys who You know, we're in their shoes, guys who – you know, I don't know how to even talk about this without sounding like an idiot. Guys who don't have game, guys who can't talk someone into fucking them or dating them could by right just of being a man in this society have an expectation to a wife and to sexual access to women that they don't have as a matter of birth right now, that men do not have as a matter of birth right now. And that is actually a new and different thing for millennia. Mm -hmm. women were Mm -hmm. property, and that is over, at least in the West. And here's this online community of men who cannot reconcile themselves to that fact.
4: Yeah, yeah. They actually just expressed nostalgia for a time before, uh, as one commenter put it, socialist government policies um, basically eliminated women's need for men. In other words, women's need to have sex with men in order to be protected and taken care of. There was another commenter who attempted to cheer up his fellow incels by posting um, a reminder that for much of human history, men didn't need to ask for women's approval to have sex with them because, you know, for example, in war times, they could just rape and pillage. Um, and, and those were the good old
2: days. Uh, uh, yeah. Have you seen the Louis C.K. Uh, monologue where he says he's surprised women will even date men or talk to them or look at them considering how much violence uh, women are subjected to at the hands of men? I was reading your piece and all I could think of was that Louis C.K. Uh, monologue, diatribe, <laughs> comedy rip, which is just so true.
4: It's so true. It's it's painfully true. And I knew, I knew this was true. I knew this existed in the world, but I was still horrified to discover this. I... I I, I really couldn't believe it when actually faced with these actual remarks. They're, you know, they're fantasizing about rape, um, not in a sort of, not in a way that's like detached from reality and is truly just fantasy. They actually want that to become reality. You know, without much searching, I found a guy who very openly discusses his desire to go on a shooting spree. And, and he blamed that on his lack of sex. And he was actually greeted with a fair amount of, sympathy and understanding from his fellow
2: posters what do we do what is the solution you know i just took a call from a 38 year old male virgin who is in no way sounding angry he doesn't blame anybody for his plight he was a caretaker for ill family members for a long time and he's basically just getting started on even being able to conceive of himself as sexual or out in the world or dating and doesn't know where to begin so I, I don't want to stigmatize that guy by lumping him in with the involuntary celibates who are cranking each other up on these sites that you visited, who are so filled with rage and anger. But there are guys in the world who are socially maladapted to such an extent that they mm-hmm. they they cannot date. They cannot yeah. you know, get girls the way the vast majority of men are capable of getting girls.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and every guy, not every guy in that position, is going to you know, adopt these misogynist ideas and um, espouse violence online. So, I mean, I think there actually is hope for men, for your caller, guys that are like your caller. Um, For the guys that are so far gone that they're participating in these message boards, I I don't know that there is anything that can be done for them.
2: One of the guys that that you quoted, uh, what he throws out was, we need to destigmatize prostitution. So that mm-hmm. – and this is hard for me to talk about without it sounding like I'm saying I wish all these homicidal maniacs would go see sex workers. Uh, yeah, I, right. I, I have lots of friends who are sex workers. I don't want homicidal maniacs uh, patronizing my friends who are sex workers, male or female. Right. But, you know, back when uh, that movie came out where the – what was the name of that movie? Helen Hunt played the sexual surrogate. Uh, the surrogate. I think it was the name, yeah. Oh, yeah, the surrogate where she provided sexual release and comfort and and, and attentions to someone who couldn't earn it because he was so physically disabled. There are people in the world who are so emotionally or socially disabled that they can't earn it either. And, it, it, we, would look at, we would look at somebody who is a quadriplegic who you know got a surrogate and we would think, oh, that's heartwarming, that's touching, let's give them, uh-huh. o- let's give them Oscars. And we would look at a story of someone who's <laughs> walking and talking and functioning in the world and holds down a job but it is so socially disabled that they are romantically yeah. and sexually unsuccessful. Who sees a sex worker and we think, oh, there's a John, he should be in jail.
4: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I've always felt that that sex work can provide a, a truly healing service. You know, I, I, I couldn't argue against the fact that touch and human contact um, are very good for people. Um, but the worst of these guys that we're seeing online who are calling for legalizing sex work, which for the record, I am actually totally for... <laughs> Sex, sex workers are not the solution for the worst of these guys. As the porn performer Lorelai Lee pointed out um, on Twitter, sex workers can say no, as well. <laughs> and absolutely, and, and you don't you don't get a free pass to treat them like shit. And they're still human. And and that's I think a problem for the worst of these guys. They don't want have to to have to deal with the messiness of human interaction and and negotiation. They just want what they want and they feel entitled to it.
2: But maybe there would be fewer guys descending into the ranks of the worst if we didn't stigmatize. I mean, part of what fuels the rage uh, of someone like an Elliot Roger, these guys in the involuntary celibacy, quote unquote, community, it makes the word community feel like it's been dipped in shit when you attach it to this crew. (laughs) Um, but part of what seems to fuel their rage is this uh, idea that they're failures, that they've been rejected, yeah. that they're not romantic successes. And, you know, with one of the stigmas attached to sex work is only losers have to go see mm-hmm. sex workers. And mm-hmm. these are guys who are slipping away into this, you know, pool of rage because they feel like losers. As long as loser is also attached to guys who see sex workers to get their need for touch or intimacy met – then that is an outlet that might prevent some guys from sort of falling off the cliff is Mm -hmm. not going to be available. I don't want crazy people seeing sex workers. I don't want violent, hateful people seeing sex workers. Uh, Yeah. But there, you know, there's a lot of guys out there who feel like they have nothing because they can't earn it. And they feel like paying for it only makes them more the loser. And you can pay for it without being the loser that. Yeah you gain and there's some exchange or some commodity. Everybody pays for it a little bit around the edges somehow, even Mm -hmm. if no cash changes hand. And I just feel like if we could lift the stigma around paying for it, we would have fewer people losing themselves in this involuntary celibacy community where they crank each other up about their anger and their rage because they would be getting something, some need met. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean,
4: sex work can be incredibly humane. It really can. It could be a social service
2: in a lot of ways. It can be. And I've heard, I've talked yeah. to plenty of sex workers who have seen really socially maladapted, awkward guys. Yeah. And they feel it's almost their mission to provide mm-hmm. these guys with what they otherwise would never experience all their lives, including the attentions of a, of a woman who can then level with them. <laughs> you know, I have sex right. with friends who've like said, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you need right. to change. You know, I have a, yeah. one, I have a sex worker friend who saw, I, I call them social maladapts. I saw a sex worker friend who saw a social maladapt who talked him into getting a therapist in addition to seeing sex uh-huh. workers every once in a while.
4: Well, and sex workers so often end up spending a lot of their session talking to their clients, and, and that's something that I think these men sorely need is actual human interaction and conversation. Um, they need to socialize.
2: And the culture needs to change. It's not yeah. that we take these social. It's not that the solution to this problem ultimately is destigmatizing sex work and sending guys who might otherwise slip away into right. Crazy Town to see sex workers and they're going to be better. We need to change the culture that tells men that they're entitled to sex that encourages men to view women as their property, uh, as this mm-hmm. thing that they a reward that they have a that they should be given for being male or in some other way successful Mm -hmm. and that they've been wronged somehow by the culture if they're alone. All of that needs to change and the yes all women hashtag on Twitter that was unpacking this all week was just genius and if you didn't look at it, please go look at it. But in addition to that, I feel like a monster. Like I saw that comment in your piece at Salon about incels, Mm -hmm. about prostitution and this you're quoting one of the incel community board Right. members. And I thought, yeah, I kind of almost agree with that insight. Kind
4: of agree. Right, right. I mean, I th- and I think it, it really is true that that, that that could be a solution of sorts for some men who are just not so far gone and, and so incredibly mentally ill. Um, it's, it's just the men who are sort of looking for a way to get everything they want without having to respect that there's another human being in the interaction who has their own wants and desires.
2: Mm-hmm. We have these conversations about destigmatizing sex work. You know, I'm pro sex mm-hmm. work. I think it should be legal. You're pro sex work. We rarely have a conversation about destigmatizing patronizing sex workers. That even people who are pro sex work, pro sex workers' rights, pro uh, uh, decriminalization, will often disparage the guys who go to sex workers.
4: Yeah, right. No, it's a great point. I mean that that's that's an interesting conversation. How how to actually destigmatize? I mean, because so much you have guys being sent to John's schools and, and all of that and having them, you know, named and shamed in local papers. I mean, it's hard to even have the conversation without sex work being legal, I think.
2: So a lot of what you write for Salon, uh, you know, is sex positive. It comes from a place of joy and exploration and, and fun and, you know, very affirming. You're a woman, you have male partners. When you do a deep dive into a dark place like this, does it put you off men for a decade or two? How do you like? How, how do you shake this off after peering into this really dark corner of some men's deranged souls concerning their attitudes towards yeah. towards women? As a woman, how do you just walk away from this?
4: Yeah. Well, actually, the way I dealt with it was I wrote this story, and then I went to dinner with my husband, who is a great <laughs> a great feminist man, who reminded me that not all men are this way. Not even most men <laughs> oh, wait, are wait. this way.
2: You can't say that online. You'll get the not all men hashtag coming at you.
4: Uh, (laughs) I know. I know. I know. (laughs) I know. It's true.
2: Um, God God help the man who reads the yes all women hashtag and then points out that not all men engage in blank. But Tracy Clark Flory, you just said not all men in reference to your feminist husband. I guess that's okay because you are vouching for him and you are, yes, a woman. Yes.
4: There you go. I'm 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 bridging the divide
2: there. <laughs> Tracy Clark Flory. <laughs> she writes for Salon. Uh, check out all of her stuff. Um, really terrifying piece she wrote recently inside the terrifying, twisted online world of involuntary celibates. Elliot Roger is a part of a sprawling community of men who fantasize about rape and mind control by Tracy Clark Flory at Salon. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today and having this awkward, difficult, sprawling conversation. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Hi,
0: this is Amy. I've been married for almost 30 years to a wonderful guy, and we've had awesome sex a lot of that time. But there's one big issue for at least the last 10 years. We haven't French kissed. He doesn't like to French kiss. He thinks it's disgusting. And it's killing me because it's my favorite thing. To me, it's the basis of sex, and I love it. And I miss it so much. And I just can't stand it anymore. And he just won't do it. And we have these kissing fights. And it's gotten to the point where we can't even kiss at all. Because it's just like we're not on the same page. And whenever there's, whenever I'm starting to get into it, he stops. And he, he hates it. And he's just... Whenever it starts to feel good to me, it's exactly when he hates it. And he, he takes enough mouth away. So, I think it might have started when I had an affair like ten years ago, but it is that is so over and we with marriage counseling, and I've been completely faithful and we' it just feels like everything's falling apart without the kissing. I just don't know what to do, and we're stuck, so we would love your advice. Can you have a good marriage without kissing? Does he owe me French kissing? We do everything else. he's totally open to everything else, just not French kissing. All he wants to do is kiss kind of dry on the lips. When we do French kiss, he's like really, he only wants to do his tongue. And as soon as my tongue gets into the picture, he takes his mouth away. So it's it's like he he does it sort of like, like lingus. Like he does it the same way that he goes down on me. It's like he, he'll he do lingus on my tongue. But it's not real French kissing. It's not mutual. It's not relaxed. It's not sensual. It's only when he's in control. And it's really boring for me. My tongue just sits there like a like a clitoris but it's not like we're together kissing like a real it doesn't feel like real kissing to me at all it's like there's no intimacy in it for me i hope this is clear i would love to get follow-up and would love to get your input because he really he listens to your show and he really respects you okay thank you so much bye
2: we're playing your call since your husband listens to the show so that he can hear how unhappy you are and i don't know what else that i can do for the two of you There's nothing that comes to mind that I can say that will make something that a person doesn't enjoy uh, or that shuts that person down into something that that person loves and that opens that person up. And if he just can't do it, if he can't be receptive to your tongue, because he can French kiss as long as you're passive the whole time, as long as you are being penetrated with his tongue, whether we're talking about your lady bits or your mouth, then it's fine. The minute your tongue emerges um, from your face into his mouth, he loses it. It's baffling, this is a mystery. That he was fine with French kissing for the first 20 years of your marriage and not fine with it for the last 10 years. uh, And that there was an affair that was exposed or that came out that sent you both to marriage counseling at that same point that he stopped kissing you in the way that you like, in the way that you require, you say, to to enjoy sex, could that be a coincidence or could that be a battle for control? Could that be a coincidence or, or could that be him consciously or subconsciously punishing you for the affair by denying you this necessary pleasure all your life? I don't know. Maybe it's something for the both of you to discuss with a marriage counselor. Maybe for the first 20 years of your marriage, he was French kissing you the way that you liked with your tongues intertwined and his tongue flying into your mouth and your tongue flying into his. And he hated it the whole time because it doesn't work for him. And the way that it turns you on, it turns him off. And after the affair was exposed, he just was like, fuck it. I'm done doing things that I don't enjoy or that make me feel terrible. Uh, and I'm going to stop playing these sorts of games and bleh. I don't know. Again, something to unpack with the marriage counselor that you two should return to or the sex counselor. And again, since your husband is a listener and is listening to this, can hear the sound of my voice, dude, what's the problem? (laughs) Why won't you let your wife French kiss you back? If it's fine to put your tongue in her mouth, that means your tongues are touching. You're not afraid of her tongue forked or otherwise. It's not a Ugly tongue, presumably. It's a tongue that you enjoy tonguing a bit. What's wrong with the tonguing happening in your face instead of her face? I don't get it. But good luck to you both.
4: Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old bi, I guess, woman living in California. I suppose I've always known that I was bi, but the real nail in the coffin was a few nights ago when my best friend of four years and I got a little too drunk and ended up making out. I've never had any experience with a woman before because it's always been really easy for me to just be in a relationship with a guy. However, when I kissed my friend the other night, it was very clear to me that I am attracted to women as well. Uh, but here's the kicker. I have a brand new boyfriend who is fucking awesome. And though we aren't exclusive right now, he would like to be in the near future. So I have two questions for you. One, do I break out the rainbow confetti and shout from the mountaintop that I am newly discovered by and even though I'm in this relationship with this really great guy? And two, do I consider leaving this wonderful, fantastic man to explore my sexuality? I don't want to give him up, uh, especially since it's such a brand new relationship. We've been dating maybe a month. Uh, but I also feel like I should go and discover more about who I am.
2: If I use the expression nail in the coffin as confirmation of bisexual identity, there would be hell to pay. I just want to point out here that it was a bisexual who said nail in the coffin. I think you're, you're getting ahead of yourself here. You've been dating this guy for a month, not even exclusively for a month. Uh, most relationships fail. Right every relationship you 're ever going to be in is going to fail until one doesn 't The odds that any given relationship one month in is a relationship that 's going to stick is going to be long term uh, is the one that isn 't going to fail particularly when you 're twenty two are very slim so before you you know go and have perhaps a too sudden too soon conversation about your Sexuality, although I do think you should be out to him about being bi, since you are bi and you know that of yourself, and you knew that before it's not you discovered you were bi kissing this girl, you confirmed for your own purposes that you were bi when you kissed this woman. I think you should disclose that to him. But before you have a conversation about the future and monogamy and your sexuality, keep dating this guy. Who knows? It's only a month and you're not even dating exclusively yet. Who knows? You may discover something about him in two weeks that's a deal breaker. You may discover something about him that, you know, dating is a discovery process. You may discover something about him that makes you want to leave him by or no by, in your case. Or he may discover something about you that makes him want to leave you by or no by. Maybe when you tell him you're bi, that will be that thing. Some guys don't want to date girls who are bisexual, or so I'm told. The cliche is that most straight guys are only too delighted to date a bi girl because it puts in their head that that will mean a lifetime of girl, girl, boy, three ways. And if that is something that you're fine with, or you're up for, you might want to put that on the table. It may make committing to you that much more attractive, not less attractive for him. But again, getting ahead of yourself. It's only been a month, not even an exclusive dating situation. Continue to explore, get with your best friend before you make a commitment, get to know yourself a little better before you enter into a monogamous commitment with this guy. If that's ultimately what he wants you discovered now that you're bi, now you need to figure out if you are also interested in or capable of being monogamous. And if you aren't, then don't make a monogamous commitment. Hey Dan,
1: uh, my name is Zach, big time listener of the show. Anyways, uh, I have a question, pretty simple. I our dating this girl, she is wonderful, great personality, yada, 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 everything I'm looking for. Anyways, uh, we've been dating for like two months, things are great. Um, the only thing is, she still doesn't want to have, we've done everything but, but, except for the big ones. I don't know, I'm just wondering, she still wants to wait, I kind of asked her how long, she says just a little bit longer, I don't know what that means. What do I do? Part of me feels like it's worth it, the other part's kind of like, do I want to let someone have this much control over that? Does that sound weird, just normal?
2: When you say you're doing everything but sex, does that mean you're doing every other activity on the earth but sex? You're bowling, you're parasailing, you're hang gliding, you're snowboarding. Uh, No, typically when someone says we're doing everything but sex, they mean we're doing everything sexual that two people can do together save vaginal intercourse. So you're having oral sex, you guys are masturbating together, you're rolling around, you have a sexual relationship, you have a sexual connection, you are... Climaxing together. You're getting off. She's getting you off. You're getting her off, hopefully. Uh, so, what she's asking you to wait a little bit longer for is vaginal intercourse. I can't tell you what a little bit longer means for her. Only she knows what a little bit longer means. And, you know, time is a relative concept. There's geological time and there's fruit fly time and the fruit flies time and the granite time. It's different. So, what it is for her, I don't know. In the interim, though, until she's ready, you're not deprived here. You're being taken care of sexually. You're doing everything but. And my advice to you, if you like this girl, is to continue doing everything but. And who knows? Maybe she's a virgin. Maybe she has never had vaginal intercourse. She really wants to be sure about you or she really wants to wait or she's nervous and she wants to get an impression that you are a sensitive, patient, considerate partner and making you wait and seeing you wait in a sensitive, caring, considerate way is the proof that she needs to have in her hands before she says yes to vaginal penetration, which is so important to you that you're anxious for it to happen. My advice to you, if you like her, keep doing what you're doing. Keep saying that when she's ready, you're really anxious without hurrying her along, without pressuring her, just so that she knows that this is something you would like to do with her. You're not indifferent to it. You can be anxious. You can have your feelings too. Let her know that when she's ready, you're ready and you look very much forward to it. And then wait. And if you reach a point where the wait isn't worth it anymore, leave.
4: Hey, Dan. Uh, I am a 23-year-old bisexual female living in the Midwest. Uh, I am white, and I am just started talking to um, this black guy, and it's going really well, and I've always had a thing for those chocolate men, and he's just so fine, and he's so sweet, and I really like him. And there are a lot more cultural differences uh, between us than I had expected originally. However, like, I don't mind them. I think that they're funny. Like, sometimes I don't know what you're saying. He you has to explain things to me and he thinks it's cute. But we haven't really, like, gone on a whole bunch of dates and really gotten out a lot. But when we have, I've noticed, like, some staring, which I'm fine with. It kind of, like, being with some the retention, I guess. But um, I was just wondering if there's a lot of, like, racism and, um, against interracial couples uh, I know that you talk about the struggles of gay couples, but um, I don't know. I don't have any friends who are in any racial couples that I can go to and ask. And um, I'm also like kind of a meek person. Like I really avoid confrontation and I don't know what to do if someone does come up and say something rude or if I get any rude comments or I don't know if people still get rude comments about stuff like that.
2: Yes, there is a lot of racism out there. There is. The trick is when, you know, you're out on a date with your boyfriend and somebody clocks you guys, somebody looks at you, maybe they think your boyfriend is hot too. Maybe they're looking at your tits. Maybe they're looking at you and thinking, oh, cute couple. Maybe some of them are thinking, oh, interracial dating, so wrong. But you can't know, right? Sometimes people look at people. This has happened to, you know, it happens to every gay couple. You're like out, dinner, it's clearly romantic. Somebody looks at you for a minute and you think, Are they staring? Why are they staring at us? Then I have to remind myself, oh, look what Terry's wearing. Who's not going to look, right? (laughs) It's like crazy clothes. Could be these clothes, could be anti-gay hate. Uh, The important thing to do in that moment is just fucking shrug it off. Who gives a shit? Whether they're looking at you guys because they think he's hot, just like you think he's hot, or they're looking at you guys because they disapprove. Their disapproval is irrelevant to you and to your relationship. It matters not at all up and until somebody decides to fuck with you up and until somebody decides to launch a campaign to make interracial relationships and dating illegal, which nobody is doing up and until somebody approaches you guys to express their disapproval says to you, why are you here with him? This is so wrong. And then their stock responses, fuck off, fuck you. Whatever you're going to say to that person can begin with the word. Fuck, fuck you. Go away. Fuck off, fuck off. Fucker who asked fucking you anything. Go away. Go away. Just tell the racist piece of shit to go fuck themselves and you're done. And then you can go back to focusing on each other and not worrying about whether some people disapprove. Cause I'll tell you some people disapprove and those people are assholes and those people aren't people you should waste too much time obsessing about.
0: Hello, Dan. My question is, does
5: it really make a difference if my girlfriend doesn't drink enough water? Cause she's a squirter. She squirts. So there's times that we don't we don't see each other all the time. We see each other on the weekends. So there's times I see her and she squirts all weekend. There's times I see her and she squirts a little bit and she claims that it's because she doesn't drink enough water. She does drink enough fluids but not enough water. Does that make a difference or is it that somebody else is making her squirt? That's my question. Is she cheating on me or not? Is it is it true that because she's not drinking enough water she's not squirting as much as she normally does? Or just somebody else? doing her
2: the favorite part of me wants to say she's definitely cheating on you and you should break up with her not because i believe she's cheating on you not because i know she's cheating on you not because the difference in volume between one squirt orgasm and the next squirt orgasm is proof of anything but because i typically think that people who are dating really insecure jealous types are better off without them and your call makes you come across as an insecure jealous type maybe you're not maybe you're just having a dark moment Maybe this isn't typically who you are. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but the fact that sometimes when she sees you, she squirts like crazy. And sometimes when she sees you, there's not as much uh, isn't proof that she's cheating on you. It doesn't mean she squirted for somebody else the day before she got there. It isn't also proof that she's dehydrated or not getting enough fluids, or not getting enough water. Maybe that's just what she told you because she didn't know what else to tell you. And she figured she had to tell you something because you were being so irrational about measuring the volume of her ejaculate. And so she fobbed you off with. I I, I just I'm dehydrated. That's I didn't get enough water. That's why there's not enough squirt in me. Can we change the subject? Would you shut the fuck up about this? Is probably what went down. Guys, when they come, some guys shoot every time. Come flies over their shoulders. Come flies across the room. Sometimes guys, the same guy, Sometimes he dribbles. There's no particular cause and effect to that. Some orgasms are more intense. Uh, female ejaculation is about the stimulation of the G spot. It's a particular other kind of uh, vaginal stim that a woman gets with with an intense and typically long buildup. And so maybe sometimes when you guys are fucking, you're hitting that spot and you're going long and the desire is built up because you guys haven't seen each other all week and she has a really intense, mind-blowing orgasm. And sometimes when you guys get together, maybe you're not hitting that spot, but she's still having fun and she's still getting off And then you have this look on your face after she comes without squirting or doesn't squirt enough or doesn't squirt as much as last time. And it's that that's ruining it. It's that that's going to end this relationship. She will sleep with someone else eventually because she's going to break the fuck up with you if you can't stop making a problem out of something that is not a problem. If you can't stop looking at this physiological response that she is not in control of and holding it up as proof that she's potentially cheating on you. That's just fucking crazy talk. Don't be crazy because if you are crazy, you will soon be the ex. If you are crazy, she will stop fucking other guys after she's rid of you.
4: Hi, Dan. I am from the Midwest, 36-year-old straight woman, divorced. Uh, Just recently started seeing a guy who is 10 years older than me, so he's 46. We get along great. Um, He's not big into commitment, neither am I. So, you know, we actually work out quite perfectly together. Um, The question I have is um, when we get sexual, he can get hard, but when it comes to actual penetration, he goes soft. I understand he's older. It happens, but he feels really bad about it when it happens. And generally, you know, he's apologizing for it. And I just turn around and go, you know what? I know it happens. I understand. And then I kiss him and we start doing other things to help forget about the situation. Um, I just would like your advice as to whether or not I'm doing the right thing when I say, you know, um, I understand it happens. And then just start kissing him and go about doing other things to forget about it. Or if there's something else that I could possibly say or do differently in order to not make it seem like such a big deal to him because it's not really a big deal. He he gets me off perfectly fine otherwise, and he seems satisfied with what we're doing otherwise.
2: If he's getting you off and you're satisfied and you're getting him off and he's satisfied, even if there isn't penetrative sex, you're doing everything right. When you guys go for penetrative sex and he loses his erection, yeah, it's absolutely the right thing to do, to pivot to all the other stuff that two people naked in bed together can do that doesn't rely on the guy having to bust out a rock hard cock. And you're doing that. The only thing that I would add to your arsenal is to really decenter penetrative sex. Maybe penetrative sex is something that isn't going to work for him. You don't mention whether you guys are using condoms. Maybe he's one of those guys who has a dick allergy to condoms and it just make his erection go away, uh, which is stupid and ridiculous, but they're out there. Why not for a time? like a month or two months or whatever, just say, you know what, let's stop. Every time we get sexual, we have penetrative sex as the goal. We have vaginal intercourse as the goal. And we get up there and then, you know, we're set on a detour because, because, you know, because this keeps happening. So let's just not make that the goal. Let's have non-penetrative sex. Let's roll around. Let's do oral. Let's jack off. Let's, you know, you can finger me. Let's, let's do everything else that we've been doing that's working and stop having all those things that we're doing, that work for us be this consolation prize that we get to after we attempt the thing that isn't working for us and just take all the pressure off in that instant. So every time you guys are going to be intimate, the, you know, it isn't looming over you at those moments like, are we going to be able to do that." Oh no, I guess we'll like jack off and roll around. Just jack off and roll around. Just do oral, just do all that other shit that you're doing that works and stop doing the thing for now that isn't working. Well, you're really much more into each other, much more confident, much more familiar with each other. And if you can do this, you get like, you get a metal pinned on your chest you get the gold star. You can make it a game. You can make it an erotic game that, you know, he doesn't get to fuck you. You guys are not going to do this. You can reach a point where he is so ready and, and so pumped and so confident in his dick and you and your connection and so comfortable with you that he is ready to go, ready to fuck you. And you can put your hand on his chest and say, nope. Nope, you got away. We're not there yet. We're not, we agreed that this is going to be a two months of just this. And that can make that ultimate moment where you actually get there. So enticing and so exciting as opposed to so fearsome right now, that's his point of failure. Every time take it away. It becomes not a point of failure anymore. It becomes not the goal. Every time you get sexual, but there are these consolation prizes take it away. And then that becomes forbidden fruit. And that much more attractive, potentially. So that one time when he's like, let's, please, uh, uh," you can say, go for it. And I bet you when you reach that point after a month or two, he can do it. He'll get through it. Get through it. Make it sound like a trial. Make it sound like an ordeal. You'll get to that point and he will knock it fucking out of the park.
4: Hi, Dan. I need you to please settle a friendly disagreement between me and my friends. I want to hear your thoughts on whether or not it's okay or uncouth to date someone that your friend who is already in a committed relationship has a crush on. Um, I totally respect the boundaries when it comes to keeping my hands off of the exes of my friends, but crushes? (laughs) I I understand that we're all going to keep being attracted to people regardless of our relationship status, but don't you think that once you're happily coupled, you don't get to keep peeing on people, metaphorically speaking, of course. Anyway, I totally want your expert opinion on this.
2: I was going to say exactly that. You don't get to keep peeing on people. You don't get to piss on people and claim ownership uh, of crushes. I don't even ascribe to the don't date friends exes because the world is too small. And Maybe that's a gay world thing. Because there's so few gay people in the world and gay people have a lot of relationships that if we operated under that bizarre hetero omerta code that you can't date a friend's ex, we would run out of people to date in about three years. So bullshit to that, as far as I'm concerned, and super duper bullshit to you can't date somebody that I have a crush on. I'm in a committed relationship. Nothing can happen with that person. I'm not leaving my partner, but I have a crush on this person. So he's out of bounds for you. bullshit. Such fucking bullshit. No, 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 no. Your friend with the crush on this person that presumably you also would like to date should be anxious for you to date this person so that she can hear all about how how he is in bed, that you can be this source of dirt, that she can live vicariously through you. She can explore this other dimension of her crush on him, a sexual dimension on her, of her crush by hearing your dirty stories once you're dating him. Hi there, this is
3: um, actually... In response to the woman who was by and she was trying to decide what to do, and her husband wasn't really on board, I was in a similar situation which I was married, and um I was trying to decide if I was gay or not I mean for ten years, it was just back and forth back and forth. It's gonna drive you crazy until you do something about it, so you really do need to just talk to him and either renegotiate or dump him. It will drive you out of your mind because you know you want it and you're not going to get it. Hi, Dan.
5: This is a TA. Um, I have had a relationship with an ex-student. I can tell you that we know when you're hitting on us and that most of us are professionals who are not going to do anything about
2: it. So you're going to have to make the first move.
5: So what I would say is wait until final grades are posted and then send us an email with something innocuous like, tell me more about your research interest.
1: Maybe we could have a beer and trust us, we'll get the message. Hey, I'm calling in response to the uh, college sex question. Uh, I, in college, had a, a professor who wasn't in my field who would suck me off all the time. And I would go to his office in the middle of the day when, like, students were locked by. He sucked my dick. It was fucking awesome. And, uh, yeah, definitely, I pursued him. And uh, he sucked his cock. It was awesome. So I decided to let you know that they are out there. And uh, there's nothing wrong with it because I dressed the hell out of him.
2: And we're going to leave it there. As always, a big thank you to all you Magnum subscribers out there. And if you know somebody who would benefit from the Savage Lovecast, who should be a subscriber, who needs the full dose, you can go to SavageLovecast.com and click on the gift button. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at fake dan savage. Follow Tracy Clark Flory on Twitter at tracyclarkflory. The paperback edition of my latest book American Savage comes out this week. Go to amazon.com to order one or go to your favorite local independent bookstore and support them by getting it there. American Savage, now in paperback. Hump is coming to Pittsburgh. Hump the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival that I curate is coming to the Hollywood Theater in Pittsburgh on June 13th and 14th. Go to humptour.com for information about tickets and show times, and go to humptour.com to see the full list of other cities that Hump is on its way to humping. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me, and the tech savvy At risk you and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.